Uh, we're in Faith That Shakes. This is part 41, Acts 24. I want to say a prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your faithfulness to us, God. I pray that you would show us things in this book tonight, God, that would just change our lives forever. Ignite a fire in us, God. Shake us up. Give us a faith that shakes the world. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. All right, Faith is Shakes, part 41. In part 40, we saw where Paul had gotten into trouble yet again, and he was under escort of 470 soldiers to move about 60 miles to a city called Antipatris, where he is to stand trial before Felix. Thank you so much. Where he is to stand trial before Felix. And a little bit about Felix. Felix is a slave turned governor. His brother is Pallas. And Pallas became a close confidant to the emperor Nero. He was a financial secretary with Claudius. Claudius really liked him. Nero got along good with him. Not necessarily good company, right? And the historian Tacitus says that Felix was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. He added, there was a slave's heart under his royal robe. Felix's corruption was infamous was known throughout the Roman Empire, especially his greed and his inability to turn away from a bribe. Tacitus added, Felix indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity. Eventually, Felix, who we're going to look at tonight, eventually he was removed from office and banished. And had it not been for the intervention of his brother, Pallas, Felix would have been executed, undoubtedly. Felix had three wives in rapid succession. One of his wives was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. I mentioned that last week or the week before last. His wife in Acts 24 is his third wife, although there's some controversy in the order. This would be his third wife, Drusilla. She was the sister of Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, who we're going to see in Acts 25. So Drusilla was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, the guy that made Herod's temple and the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I is the Herod who had James, the apostle, beheaded back in Acts 12. Her uncle was Herod Antipas. He's the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded. So she's got a family that has, shall we say, red in their ledger. They were cruel. They were brutal. They were perverse. Here's something interesting. Drusilla was Jewish. 
She was a Jew married to a Gentile, Felix, who did not believe like she was supposed to believe. And in our story, Drusilla, this amazing story of Paul's life, and we've got Agrippa, I mean, we've got Felix, and we've got Drusilla. She's a a major player. And in this story, she's only 20 years old. She's just a young woman. Interestingly, at age 15, she married King Eses of Emesa, somewhere around Syria, ancient Syria, upon his supposedly becoming a Jew. She married him. Sources say that she was unfaithful to him, left him for Felix. And here's something else that's interesting. I'm telling you, stay with me. Historians say that Drusilla was manipulated, tricked, seduced, if you will, into leaving Eses, her first husband, to marry Felix by none other than Felix's close friend and confidant, Simon the sorcerer. Now, we've seen him before, haven't we? Simon Magus. So here's a tangled web right here. Now, one last thing. She and Felix had one kid, Marcus Antonio Agrippa. And on August 24th, 79 AD, Drusilla and her son were consumed in the lava of Mount Vesuvius, escaping Pompeii. So there's another piece of history. What do you think about that, huh? Now let's start with verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, Tertullus was a lawyer that the religious Jews hired to make their case in front of Felix. And as we're going to see, he was a smooth talker. He had a silver tongue. He was an exaggerator at the very best and a straight-up liar at worst. So look at verse 2. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity uh, is being... Uh, let, let me start over. Notice he's saying he be, he's talking to Felix. I wanted to emphasize. He's talking to Felix. And he says, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. Now, remember, Felix was a slave turned governor. Sir Tertullus begins with flattery. He begins to play him like a violin. I mean, he's bragging on him and he's got this sense of false humility. You're so great and mighty. And here's the lies. 
no one ever enjoyed peace or prosperity under the leadership of Felix. If they did happen to have peace and prosper, it was in spite of Felix. There was uprising after uprising under the leadership of Felix. That's why he was eventually fired and banished. And so there was no peace. There was no prosperity. But he's just flattering him and throw all this junk in front of him. And Felix is just, he's just eating it up, right? And so then he, he says, most noble Felix. I don't want to be tedious, but just please hear these few words we have to say. Your majesty. You know, it's just, just it's, a, it's a sham and it's a shame. Verse 5. For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he, he says, Paul is a plague. He's a disease, right? He is a disease. And, and then he goes to town, he continues, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader. So this guy is prosecuting his case, would you say? I mean, he's going to town. Now, this is the first time that Christians have been referred to as Nazarenes. Jesus was known as the Nazarene, but this is the first time that plural is attached to this people group, the Christians, the Nazarenes. This is the first time we see that. They had been called Christians at Antioch. They were people of the way, but we see here they're the sect of the Nazarenes. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. So he's accused of profaning the temple. Paul's going to defend this in a minute, but notice he says, we seized him to judge him according to our law. Really? It looks to me like we just saw what happened. Y'all seized him and tried to beat him to death. So this guy's not telling the, the truth. Verse 7, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Your Roman commander guy came and, and seized him from us violently. So this guy's so good. This lawyer is amazing. Lysias actually rescued Paul from the enraged religious mob that was wanting to tear him apart. And so he's twisting it all. Look at verses 8 and 9. Commanding his accusers to come to you, by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that, that these things were so. So you got the, the leaders, the religious Jews that are there behind their attorney, and, and they're shaking their head like, that's what happened. That's what happened. So they're, they're attesting to this. Please, come on now. Verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, so he waits. The governor nods at him. He probably said, hello, governor. You know he had to speak with an English accent because all biblical characters speak with an English accent. Hello, governor. So he allows him to speak. Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So this is not flattery. He is acknowledging his length of being a governor a long time. 
but it's interesting. He's not flattering him, but he's also showing him due respect. He's no slouch. Flattery's a sin, right? But, but he's showing him respect. Verse 11, let's pick it up there. Because you, ha- you, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. So he flat out denies that. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, or heresy is the old King James, so I worship the God of my fathers, Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul says, I did go up to Jerusalem for Pentecost. I was in the temple, but I was not inciting a riot. I was there worshiping God. He says, there is no proof to the claims they are making against me. But he does say, I am guilty as charged of worshiping God. And he's very specific. He says, the God of my fathers, according to the way. The way, this is a reference to Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. We've seen this way before. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And so, here we have the way. He says, I'm guilty as charged of worshiping God according to the way. The sect of the Nazarene. That's me. I think it's interesting how he puts it. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Are you with me? Let me just ask you. Are you with me so far? Believing all things that were written in the law and in the prophets. Remember, there was no New Testament written At the time, Paul is standing before Felix. He couldn't say, I believe according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He he couldn't say that. There, There were no books like that. So he's saying, I believe in Jesus according to the law and the prophets. He he's referencing the Old Testament. I believe in Jesus from the Old Testament. Those apostles preached their sermons from the Old Testament. They preached Jesus from the Old Covenant. Paul said, I believe all things written in the Old Covenant. I know preachers, Christian preachers today who hardly ever touch the Old Testament. Because they don't really believe the law and the prophets. They think that's outdated. That doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Paul said, I believe in Jesus from the Old Testament. So there's a lot of powerful things tucked away. I've told you before, the Messiah of the Old Testament is Jesus of Nazareth. Paul is saying, I believe in the Messiah And I believe this Nazarene Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I've told you before, John 5, 39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, search the scriptures 
for they are they which testify of me. The scriptures, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm not discounting that because we find Jesus obviously in the New Testament. But when Jesus said that, he told those religious Jews, search the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He was saying, look in there, they testify of me. This book is a Jesus book. Every story, man, he is the subject of every story in this book. It is telling the story of the Messiah, of the seed of the woman, of the Savior that would come and redeem fallen man. The entire book is a Jesus book. The old Aaron Jeffries song, if I may reach back, put it like this. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's Israel's guide. In Joshua, he's salvation's choice. In Judges, he's Israel's guard. In Ruth, he's that kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is sovereign. In Ezra, he's the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and lies. In Esther, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, he's the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he's the morning song. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the time and season. In Song of Solomon, he is the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he is a prince of peace. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Lamentations, the cry for Israel. Ezekiel, the call from sin. Daniel, the fourth man in the fire. Hosea, the forever faithful. Joel, the spirit's power. Amos, the strong arms that carry. Obadiah, the Lord and Savior. Jonah, the great missionary. Micah, the promise of peace. Nahum, our strength and shield. In Habakkuk, Zephaniah, he brings revival. In Haggai, he restores that which was lost. In Zechariah, he's our fountain. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. It's a Jesus book. It's a Jesus book. I love it. I love it. If you don't spend time in the Old Testament, you need to go there. As a matter of fact, I think when we finish our Acts series, we're going to take a Genesis train, right? We're going to get on the Bible bus, the the Bible train, and we're going to head down through, we're going to chug down through Genesis. Maybe that ought to be our theme, our name for next time, you know, like the Genesis, the the Genesis choo-choo, right? I'm just thinking out loud. Then he goes back, Paul goes back to this, this idea of the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting to me. He says, so he just, he says, I, I believe in that Nazarene from the scriptures. The, the scriptures, remember we talked about this. Paul memorized the entire Old Testament. He was that guy. He was gifted. He excelled. He went up through the ranks and he memorized the entire Old Testament and didn't understand it at all until on the road to Damascus, he's brought down by the Lord himself. 
He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. You, you have no idea what you're doing. And God arrests him and gives him revelation. And so he has all of this knowledge of Scripture that now the light has shined on it and it begins to make sense. So he begins to understand. That's why he could just like preach all night long, right? Just because he's just full of word, full of revelation, and it's just flowing out of him. So he, he had all this understanding and, and it, it made sense. Like he got it now. He said, I believe for, uh, Jesus from all that Old Testament scripture. And then he says in verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, even though the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, most Jews did. So he says, they, they believe this for the most part. He said, I hope in the fact that one day these bodies that we lay down in death will be resurrected. He writes extensively on this in 1 Corinthians 15. We went over that in Expedition Early Church. And, and, and we see that a, a human being is a spirit with a soul housed in a body. We tend to think of death as the separation of the, the soul and the body, which is true, but we kind of think that we go to heaven and that's the end of it. But a human being is not complete without a body, a flesh body. Jesus was raised from the dead and had a body. He ate he cooked. He ate that fish that he cooked. He also walked through walls and whatnot. He wasn't bound by time space as we are. So he has this glorified body. But he had a body nevertheless, right? He had a body, a, a flesh and bone. He called it body. And so the hope Paul was saying is not just to be a disembodied spirit, but to be a complete human being with a glorified body. And again, he wrote about this. We looked at this in Expedition Early Church in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, he said, because of this idea that the just will have a raised body and the unjust will be raised, the idea is they will spend, we will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. That's, that's the bottom line. He was saying, my hope, is to live forever with the Lord in the heavenly realm. But he said the unjust will be raised also. The idea is this. They're not going to go to heaven. They're going to go to the other place. And it's because of this idea of eternity and living forever, either in heaven or hell, that, that he found his motivation to, to, to stay the chorus. And I think it's because the modern church has discounted heaven and hell, hell and heaven, that we have no motivation to stay the course. We have no motivation to live a holy life. We think we can live however we want to because, you know, it really doesn't matter anyway. Do I go to church? Do I call myself a Christian? And, and the idea, Paul is, is propagating, looking at a very sinful governor and a governor's wife, with religious Jews over here that Jesus said, you circle the globe to make a convert and they're twice the child of hell than you are. 
Jesus said that about them. He's got these guys on the right. He's got Felix and Drusilla in front of him. And he's saying there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And there's a judgment coming, baby. And he was saying, my hope, my hope is in this. What's your hope in? That's the idea, right? It's, it's, it's really pretty bold and pretty calculated. Paul says in the next verse, verse 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. That's what I'm saying. He, he had said this before in 23.1, the previous chapter, and when he said to the high priest, I stand here with a good conscience before God and man. And the, the priest, remember that? He said, punch him in the face. And they did. Pow! Punched him in the face. And Paul immediately said, the Lord strike you on the face. And the guy said, you can't talk to the high priest that way. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were the high priest. That, remember that story? And so he had claimed to have a good conscience before. But I think it's a genuine, honest confession. He's saying, I am striving to live for God. I'm striving to, to put Jesus first and to love people. And we're going to see that here in a second. Striving to love God first and, and love people. And so, verse 17, now after many years... I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, for many years, if you'll remember, this is the first uh, explicit mention of it in the book of Acts, but he's mentioned it implicit in the text, and then we see it in some of the letters that he wrote. He's been collecting money from the churches in Asia Minor for the suffering church at Jerusalem, and he's finally shown up to deliver it. Now, Felix latches on to this as we're going to see he hears the fact that Paul has resources he's raised money from investors stakeholders as it were and and he has gathered a large sum of money and so Felix seizes on this this is a man susceptible to bribery this is a man with greed in his heart this is a a a, a slave with a little authority who's just trying to hoard up stuff. And so here he is. He hears that Paul has money or has access to money or access to people who have access to money. He latches on to that. We're going to revisit that in a few minutes. But then Paul goes back to the matter at hand. He was on, a, he was on trial and there were no eyewitnesses to the crime in the house. Verses 18 through 21. In the midst of which... Some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. We saw all of this. Remember, they had taken vows. He paid for that. He's purified in the temple. And and he didn't have a mob. He he didn't have a, a riot going on. He said, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council... Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. He points out, nothing of the sort happened like your hotshot lawyer has claimed. You have no proof. You're just mad because of my theological stance. Are you with me? Now notice Felix's response, verses 22 and 23. But when Felix heard these things, having more, listen to this, Having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, 
The commander comes down. I'll make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So Felix is very lenient. And we'll see why in a moment. Felix knew more about Christianity than he let on. He, he, he was dumb like a fox. He knew more about this sect of the Nazarene, more about this people of the way. He knew more about this than he let on. He had governed Judea and Samaria for six years. So we understand that just through the interaction with the Jews and Christianity growing, he would have known some things. But historians also say, as I mentioned, that he was buds with Simon Magus, who most certainly knew about Christianity. Paul had a power encounter with him and blinded him in Cyprus when Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus, was about to make a decision for Jesus. And Simon's whispering in his ear, you don't need this. You need to listen to this. And Paul realizes what's going on. Remember that story? And he said, you'll be blind from now on, you son of the devil. And Sergius Paulus becomes a Christian. Apparently, Simon Magus, his blindness led up. It doesn't appear that he became a Christian, although Paul had been blinded and then became, and became a Christian. Simon Magus did not become a Christian. And is, is here again whispering in the ear of another governor, Felix. Isn't this interesting? And so Felix is just carnal. He, he, history says Felix and Simon had many long discussions into the night concerning spiritual matters, including Judaism and Christianity. Felix, though, just couldn't make the journey One of the things is he loved money, M-O-N-E-Y. And we'll see that was the underlying reason for this whole delay here. Felix had enough evidence to rule in favor of Paul, but he delayed it. During this delay, he said, why don't, he talks to Drusilla, why don't we get Paul to come preach a personal message to us? It's interesting. He's got a, he's got a, Spin on the scriptures I've not heard before. It's kind of interesting. Let's pull in old Paul. And so his wife, who's a Jew, she consents. She's like, okay, let's do it. So verses 24 and 25, after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So here we have it referred to as the faith. Now, as he reasoned, listen to this, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Felix is shaken in his boots. The boldness of Paul never ceases to amaze me. Here he has a moment with this hideous ogre of a dictator. Power run amok. And he preaches about righteousness, 
self-control and judgment to come. He's already told him, I know you've been doing this for a long time. You've judged in many cases. Now he's saying, you are going to be standing where I am. But it's not going to be a Felix you're standing before. It's going to be the Lord of glory. So it's righteousness, self-control, which you have none, and judgment to come. He's preaching this to two nuts, Felix and Drusilla. Folks, they're whacked out of their minds. They're corrupt. They are brutal. They murder people. They steal from people. They are carnal. They are out of control. They are certain to be judged for their shenanigans. And still, Paul holds nothing back, even with his very life on the line. And my question is, why? Why would Paul risk it all? I have to say to myself, in the back of my mind, in the back of his mind, he had to be thinking, the Lord promised me I'd go to Rome. So I'll survive this one way or the other, and I'll go to Rome. Because God told me I'm going to Rome. So maybe in the back of his mind, that gave him some confidence. But on the other hand, I mean, they've threatened him. They've done everything but kill him. And here's a man with the power to have him executed, to have him crucified, to do whatever he wants to do with him. And, and yet, and yet, Paul looks at him and tells him the truth. And I ask you, why? Why would Paul do that? Why would Paul risk it? And I'll tell you why. Because God loves people, even whacked up, jacked up, messed up, the worst of the worst. God loves people. And his grace was reaching out to a man named Felix and his crazy wife named Drusilla. Giving him a chance. Loving messed up people. And I, I couldn't help. Please indulge me tonight. We lost Aaron Saxton this week out of the blue. It was just broke broke my heart, man. How many of you knew Aaron? We got some hands in the house. If you ever met him, you never forgot him, ever. He was larger than life. He was a cartoon character. He was a caricature of himself. He was a trip. He was a trip. He's a movie star. He's in the Ant-Man and a bunch of other movies. And he was one of our original wild boys. At Life Point, I, I got a couple of pictures. Let me show them to you right here. That's Aaron right there. I taught Aaron a Bible study at 8 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday mornings, I believe it was, in a warehouse on Exchequer every week, week in, week out. Aaron and about 25, 30 other guys, they smoking dope out back. like that. It was a messy situation. And, he, and here I am with my watercolor chart. Set up in the middle of all of this circus. And I'm like, all right, we're going to say a prayer and we're going to jump right in the word. All right, boys. And they take their hats off, you know. It's like, Lord, you know, like, give us revelation. Show us your word, right? And, and so here we are. We're, we're in the Abraham saga, you know. Like, Abraham was an early Chaldees. And we go through this Bible study. I baptized Aaron at the Tiggy property over here before we had finished the remodel. 
in the old Rubbermaid horse trough, the very first one we had, baptized them. Never forget it. We called it Baptism Palooza because Mark and Josh, Josh would not get baptized until his brother, who was having issues, would get baptized with him. And I kept pressuring him, like, you got to get baptized. He's like, I'm waiting on my brother. I'm believing for my brother. And sure enough, his brother comes up, and I baptized them both that same day, baptized Aaron that same day. And then he was in my living room, our living room, over here on Cypress Alley. And, and uh, Donna Marcelli taught a Bible study, and we began to pray at the end. And in front of my TV right there, right, right by the fireplace, Aaron was standing there as God glorious filled him with the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues in my living room. And, and, and when I would go to that Bible study on Wednesday mornings, it's been a long time since I've talked about it. I could freak you out with some of the stories. But when I tell you, it was, it was a mess. I love taking guest preachers. Like I love, David Smith called me yesterday asking what happened to Aaron. And, and I said, he said, bro, that goes back to the warehouse. Because I drug David to the warehouse in those Bible studies. I drug missionaries to the warehouse. I drug every preacher I could to the warehouse. And they were always full of advice. Until they got to the warehouse. You know, Donovan, have you, have you tried uh, Spirit of Freedom Ministries for alcohol and drug abuse? You know, that's what you should try. And they give me all this. And I'll say, you know what? You just get, get to the warehouse and then you give me some advice uh, after you meet all my congregation. That's where, you know, I got out one time with one preacher from New York and walked in and and as we're walking in, one of the young men in my congregation said, Pastor, I dropped some acid. I started speaking in tongues last night. Like, I don't understand. What does it mean? And I looked at my visiting preacher and I said, You got any advice? And he's like, duh, 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 duh. I was like, Welcome to my world. You know, let's. I got so many of those stories. But I was reminded, you know, in the early days of LifePoint, we were so happy when Phil and Misty O'Connell showed up because they had a kid, they were married, and they had jobs. They were what we call the normal family. And they decided to lock arms with us and go to work on some of these wild boys. I had a lot of people come through the door that were church people. And they didn't want to lock arms with us. They were freaked out. They didn't know what to do with these wild boys. And it, it hurt my feelings at times. And I was like, we're trying to reach the lost. That's what we're doing. That's who we are. That's, what we're, that's why we exist. Oh, I'm worried about my kids coming to this church. and uh, I'm worried about, you know, this and that and the other. And, you know. Like, and sometimes, like, this brought me back to reality. Brothers and sisters, it really is all about Jesus and people and mission. I feel like we're a little, sometimes I think we're a little too big for our britches. Like, we've got a new building. We're legit. It offends me, the fact that people think we're legit now. Like, legit churches, like, treat us a little differently now. We're legit. Brother, we got this property right across Walmart for crying out loud. Who saw that coming, right? 
When you walk out of that Walmart, do you realize you are staring at life point? When you walk out the doors of, of, of Walmart, you can't help but stare at life point. Valerie said, I'm going to pray every day people walk out of, that, out of that Walmart and the Lord moves on them and says, go to that church, go to that church. You need to visit that church. But if they do, I want to make sure we got people here that are ready to lock arms and say, we're going to love you. We're going to be patient with you. We're going to walk through your trash and your valley together. We're going to help you get out of Egypt and into the promised land no matter what it takes. No matter what it takes. And Aaron was a trip. He moved, whatever. And a lot of those boys were, tri- were trips. But I know that one of those boys right now is one of the largest soul winners, biggest soul winners in Houston, Texas right now, down in Pearland, and has started a corporation, I'm on the board, that has 6,000 members, groups all across the United States that are meeting, doing the same thing that we were doing in that warehouse all those years ago. Thousands of people affected. And I'm just saying, we got a lot of people. Paul looked at stupid Felix and crazy Drusilla and said, I love you too much not to tell you the truth. Let me reason with you about righteousness and self-control. Let me talk to you about this Jesus that got a hold of me. Amen? Isn't that amazing? That's why he told him the truth. It wasn't a, nah, 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 nah. Let me tell you where you're going. No, it was like, let me tell you about this Jesus. If he reasoned with them about righteousness, I have to believe that he went to the book of John, chapter 16, where Jesus said, and if I go away, listen, here's the advantage to you. I'll send the Holy Spirit. And when the Comforter has come, he will teach you about righteousness. And he said, in explaining that about righteousness because this world doesn't believe on me. In other words, the sin of the world, the number one sin, is not believing on Jesus. Because if you can get that number one sin taken care of, all the other sins will be taken care of. So the first thing is that He talks to them about righteousness. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. The idea is this. No matter how bad off you are, Felix, Jesus the righteous can take away all your sins. If you just turn to him. And if you'll turn to him and put him first, he'll take away all those sins. And you'll be able to control yourself and put the control of your life in his control. And these, this idea of temperance will take hold. It'll change your life forever. So it, it's some of the foundational principles that we see in Hebrews 6. Stand with me right now. Uh, that we see in Hebrews 6. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. But notice verses 26 through 27. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money, this is the verse, meanwhile, he also, Felix, also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Hello, bribe. 
Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So he's talking to Paul about Jesus. Jesus is talking to Paul, to Felix about Jesus. But in the back of Felix's mind, he's like, man, I hope he brings me an offering, you know. I might let him go. It gives me enough money. He's got resources. I know he's gathering all that money up around Asia Minor all this, those years. and He's hoping to get some money. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. You know why? Felix was fired, almost executed, banished. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. He didn't care about Paul. Felix never got his more convenient season. Brothers and sisters, we got one shot. Like, don't wait for a more convenient season. Take a hold of what the Lord offers you now. Today is the day of salvation. Let the chips fall where they may. Whenever you choose to go all in, it's going to cost you. Had Felix chosen to go all in at any time, it would have cost him dearly. But he never got his more convenient season. But at least he heard the truth.